So, so right there is sort of like the first level of curiosity. Like, what is this about? You know, what is it? And then I remember finding my first cache and thinking, how cool. Hi, it's good to have you here today. I'm Lynn Borton, host of Choose to be Curious, a show all about curiosity. We talk about research and theory, but mostly it's conversations about how curiosity shows up in work and life. Come, choose to be curious with us. My son is getting married next summer. He and his fiance are deep into planning, and it tells you a good deal about him, me, and our relationship that one of the first things he asked of me in the process was whether I might consider putting together a scavenger hunt for his guests. The thrill of the proverbial chase is definitely part of the family culture. The Easter egg hunts of my youth were epic, spanning all the great outdoors. My father would tip back on his heels and with a refrain as familiar as a nursery rhyme in my house, chant, if you change your point of view, you will see something new. We learned early on to look around us differently. More than a few of those foil-wrapped or dyed eggs were up trees, all of them camouflaged, never quite where you might have expected them to be. According to research by Sidney DeMello and others, confusion, where we're stymied and things don't seem to add up, may actually be good for learning. They hypothesize that confusion which accompanies a state of cognitive disequilibrium that is triggered by contradictions, conflicts, anomalies, erroneous information, and other discrepant events can, in fact, be beneficial to learning if appropriately induced, regulated, and resolved. They found that deep learning is higher in environments that offer challenges that inspire deep inquiry provided that the learners pay attention to those impasses and their own confusion. And importantly, learners both need to have the requisite knowledge and skills to resolve the confusion, and their learning environment needs to provide appropriate scaffolds to help with resolving the confusion. All of which suggests to me the little confusion in the Easter egg hunt coupled with some hints encouragement from good old dad, and our growing resourcefulness was probably good for us. Links to that research on my website. Geocaching is a kind of treasure hunt for the 21st century. Some people jokingly describe it as using million-dollar satellites to find Tupperware in the woods. I don't know that its founders had any of this confusion-learning stuff in mind when they got started, but they sure seem to have stumbled onto something. And when I stumbled onto geocaching, I knew I had found a great curiosity enterprise. Fast forward to a local geocaching meetup recently where I learned about Sunny, Sandy, and Sean, aka Team Podcasher, a family geocaching team in Southern California with a hit podcast on the subject. Who better to explore curiosity in geocaching? I'm delighted to have Sonny Portasio of the Podcaster Podcast with me today. So welcome, Sonny. Well, thank you very much. It is great to be here chatting with you. Well, I have been really looking forward to this conversation. So I did a very short version of what geocaching is. You're really the expert. Tell the audience what we're talking about. Oh, yeah, I'd be delighted to. Well, as you kind of touched on it, it's a game very much similar to actually Easter egg hunting. Players out there search for hidden containers using some kind of GPS device. Now, a long time ago, it used to be 
dedicated GPS devices that people use for camping and hiking. But nowadays, it's really easy to play because uh, smartphones are enabled with GPS. And essentially, players hide containers, uh, and the coordinates are posted to one singular central website, which is geocaching.com. And then what happens is other players go to that website, which lists all the geocaches that are hidden all around the world. And they decide, you know, which geocaches they want to go hunt for. And actually, it's even easier than that on smartphone, free smartphone apps. You just open it up and you can see the geocaches that are hidden around you. And you use your GPS uh, enabled device like a smartphone to get to the location and then start searching for a hidden container. And one of the big tips that I have for people is because when newbies start geocaching, they think the arrow and uh, GPS is going to lead them directly to the container. That's not how it is. <laughs> yeah, <actually. no. laughs> what, what happens once you get within you know, 10, 15, 20 feet, you do start to have to do exactly what you did when you're Easter egg hunting. You need to start looking with your eyes and you know, using your brain and figuring it out. But once you do find it, you sign the logbook, put the geocache back for others to find so you don't actually take the container. Optionally, the, depending on the size of the geocache container, you can trade a little swag items, which are sometime, sometimes found in those uh, caches. But there's a rule. If you take something, uh, you need to leave something behind in its place. So there's always going to have swag in containers that are meant to carry swag. And that's that's great for little kids because they, they love to trade things and, you know, um, get something new. And there's lots and lots of variables. I, I, I doubt if we'll have time to go into into them. And there's lots of side games and collectibles and travelers. But uh, essentially, essentially, that's the essence. You, you find hid, a hidden container, you sign the logbook, and you put it back. And so how did you get involved? Well, I read about it in a magazine. Actually, it was an offshoot of National Geographic. It was called The Traveler magazine. And I saw this little article, and I was immediately intrigued they talked about these geocaches hidden all around the world. It was really near the inception of the geocaching uh, starting, but it was kind of this new thing. And for me, the idea of using technology to find these little hidden treasure boxes was just inviting. Yeah. And, and I, I learned there's this like secret society of hiders and finders <laughs> under our noses and all these containers just waiting to be found out there. So, so I had to give it a try. So, so right there is, sort of like the first level of curiosity, like, what is this about? You know, what is it? And then I remember finding my first cache and thinking, how cool, someone hid this. And I opened it up and the logbook was full of names of people who found it before me with little comments. And, you know, there are hundreds, if not thousands of these things hidden around San Diego. You know, we're a relatively large city, so you'll never run out. And that right there is the second facet of curiosity that hit me was, wanting to find more of these caches and see how people have cleverly hidden them and, you know, and, and learn about different geocaches and locations. Now, as far as Sandy, this is, I'll try to make this a brief story, but it's a good one. We were set on a blind date between her brother and I, and he invited me to come over to dinner and meet Sandy for the first time. This was back in 2004. And I had already been geocaching. And I thought, you know, I really don't want to go out to dinner. That sounds awkward. We're going to be sitting across from each other. And if things don't work out, you know. So I said, what are you going to do? Right. (laughs) Yeah. So so let's go geocaching. And they all, of course, like, what's geocaching? So it's great because you you involve a little bit of hiking, a little bit of searching. And it it really is a a great conduit for conversation um, along the way. So, So it ended up being me and Sandy and Sandy's brother and his <laughs> wife 
and they're three kids. So it was like this entourage of people going geocaching for the very first time for them anyway. And for me, it was a great way to, you know, see the reactions and, and demeanor of other people. And that is how I met Sandy. And that's how she got started geocaching. Oh, that's great. Yeah. I mean, you've obviously brought your son along and, you know, he's just sort of grown up in it. Yeah. But one of the things that has appealed to me about it is that it it's sort of good across the lifespan. There's not a, an age or a temperament that couldn't be drawn into this in some way. No, no, no. Actually, and, and that's a good point. The the variety of people is really widespread. There, It appeals to, to the young ones because, you know, there's that sort of treasure hunting aspect. And if you, and geocaches come in all sorts of sizes. And if you particularly look for geocaches that are large enough to contain swag, uh, that's uh-huh. a good strategy. So if you want your kids to be interested, don't look for the ones that are so small, they're about the size of a thimble, because there's there's not going to be any swag to trade. Um, <laughs> and yeah, going for hikes and and uh, getting out there out, outdoors in nature, or even finding some that are urban, although those tend to be smaller containers, is, is a great way for kids to explore their um, their environment, you know, learn a little bit more, and, and once again, just kind of catch up and, and chat while you're while you're on the hunt. Right. Well, I discovered pretty quickly, like I'm in Arlington in the greater DC metropolitan area. Mm. So very urban setting. And I started finding caches, you know, within easy walking distance of my home. And they were in places I'd walked past a hundred, a thousand times. And suddenly I realized there was hidden treasure there in plain sight in some cases. And that was like this it is. It's like kind of a magical universe that you suddenly have the keys to. It's like somehow you're in the Hogwarts, you know, Harry Potter yes. universe, and you kind of know things. Yeah. Well, it's funny that you say Hogwarts because one of the terminology that that geocachers use to describe non-geocachers is we, is we call them muggles. Right. Um, <laughs> that, yeah, and and that means that you know you're not in the know, right? You're, you you don't have that that wizardry knowledge yet. And, you know, what you just commented on, like finding these little hidden treasures in locations you've been to before is one of the common realizations that geocachers have. But the other one is that a lot of geocachers realize they're taken to locations within their backyard, within their neighborhood, within their city, within their town. And they're like, oh, I didn't know this park was here. Oh, I didn't know this, this, uh overview uh, was here where I, you know, and, and, or this bridge or this hiking trail, or um, I didn't realize this library was here. And it's amazing how many people who've lived there all their lives were, have never, you know, explored or, or, or were brought to a location except for geocaching. I mean, obviously it should be a no brainer. If you're going to go travel to a foreign country or a faraway um, place that you're going to see things and experience things, that are unique to you, right? But geocaching, even in your own backyard within a f- few miles can take you to some places that you didn't expect to. And I think that's one of the uh, the real pleasures of doing geocaching is, is learning more about w- where you live. I think that's really, really true. And And I've been scrambling around on rocks and other places here in the greater DC area that I would have just walked right past, but for geocaching. There are a lot of different sorts of caches out there, aren't there? Yeah. You know, I mean, what I described to you is the essence of it, right? A container hidden somewhere, you open it, you sign it. But over the the many years that geocaching has evolved, 
you know, it's made up of players. And although geocaching.com is sort of the central repository for all of those, all of those latitude and longitude coordinates, and they do also set the precedence of the rules of, you know, what you can and can't do. But the players come up with these different ideas of um, caches. And then if it's approved by, you know, central geocaching.com, they, they actually call it geocaching HQ. If it's approved, then it then it turns into something that can be used again and again. For instance, a long time ago, they used to have these things called virtual caches. I mean, I had one of the most profound experiences when I was in Dallas and I was there for a, 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 a business tech conference. And I realized that outside my door was a, a virtual geocache with no container. And all you had to do is find some information and then type it in the geocache to say, I found this and let the owner know. But this one was called the Grassy Knoll. And oh, this wow. one was, I found it. Yeah. <laughs> Ooh, it, it, well. was, it was about two blocks. Exactly. And I still get, I still get uh, goosebumps thinking about this. So it was nine o'clock at night, Lynn. And it was about two blocks away from my house. I left my hotel wow. and used my GPS to get to the location. And oh, right when I got there, there it was. All of the formations and structures that I'd seen so many times in black and white Zapruder films. Mm -hmm. And I thought, I am here. I am right here. And there is the uh, Stacks Library and the book depository. And I thought, I am here. And all they needed to know was some information off of a plaque for me to count it. So virtual caches can bring you to places and they're especially useful in places like national parks where containers are not allowed to be hidden. Right, where you don't want people leaving stuff, no matter right. how wonderful. Right. Yeah. In addition, there are other caches called earth caches, uh, which teach you about the geology of earth and you need to answer questions for those. And once again, those are not containers. There are these things that are not too hard to understand. They're called multi-caches where the first set of coordinates doesn't actually take you to the geocache, but sends you to something that gives you more coordinates that sends you to another location. <laughs> And then another, I remember I found this one location. It was a multi-cache. They call it a two-stage multi-cache. You go to the first one, it leads you to the second place. And Lynn, this one was one of the most memorable ones I found. It was a, it was, um, a little bit in the woods, and there was this pole. And on the pole, there was a, a, a metal tag that had the coordinates of the next location. Uh -huh. Well, as I touched the pole, I realized it was removable. Like I could carry it with me. And I went, wait a second. <laughs> so it was it was a little bit taller than mm, two broomsticks. I guess that would be the best description, maybe 10 feet tall. And when I lifted it out of its holding place, there was a hook on it on one end. When I took that pole and walked and, you know, I'm walking through the woods with this 10 foot pole. Right. <laughs> and I get to the and I get to the coordinates of the location on the tag. I'm looking around and I'm underneath a tree and I'm like, what is here? There's nothing here. Well, I look up into the tree and sure enough, there is a fake birdhouse that's being suspended by pulleys and weights with a little eye loop on the bottom side. Oh, so I wow. take the pole and I hook it to the eye loop. I pull it down. A bunch of weights go up. The bird, the birdhouse comes down and sure enough, you open the bird, the fake birdhouse and it's a geocache. And then what when I'm done, do? I put everything back. I... I, I nudge the pole up and the weights pull it back up. So it's suspended way above my head. I, even if somebody was hiking there on their own, they would have never suspected it. So those are right. gadget caches. 
There's multi there's puzzle caches out there where you have to solve a puzzle before you can even leave your your house. I could go on and on. There's something for everyone. There honestly is. You've been listening to Choose to be Curious, conversations about curiosity in work and life. I'm your host, Lynn Borton, and I'm joined today by Sunny Protasio of the Podcasher Podcast. We're talking about curiosity and geocaching. You know, we've been talking about it kind of from the from the hunter's perspective, but the people who place geocaches, who, you know, who are the hiders, there's a curiosity there, right? I mean, I know just from from the very little of this that I've done, you know, I started to be curious, like, well, what were they thinking and how, what are they telling me with what they've done and the the kind mm-hmm. of creativity and the cleverness of some of them. And I've done enough to have a sense of a couple of people's sort of persona, like they have a certain style about what they're doing. Can you talk about the kind of the curiosity from that angle? Because I think we don't sometimes kind of underestimate that. I mean, one of the first things that I encourage people to do is find several before you actually hide your own. Because yeah, I think you learn a lot from the experience of finding to yep. the possibilities that's out there. And then once you've had a little bit of experience of that, then, you know, the sky's the limit. You can, I, I've had people hide geocaches that I'm so thankful for because they really use their curiosity and skills to make something that was pleasurable for me to hunt down. You know, I, yeah. I think geocachers, hiders, they, they learn observation skills. They learn to look to see where a good geocache might be hidden because you don't just put them anywhere. You start to find locations that are either meaningful or make sense or, or somehow you think of something that would be clever. Uh huh. I think finding more different kinds of geocaches helps you find more geocaches, but it also gives you that spark to think, if I change this little bit here, then I might be able to make it a little bit different, but my own creativity. And you know, a lot of people who listen to our podcast, because you know we have an international worldwide audience, the cool thing is they can hear some idea that we share from a certain region right. and they can do it in their own area. And they seem like they're geniuses, like, well, what a great <laughs> idea. Oh, that contagion is wonderful. Yeah. Well, I think hiders learn new skills of how to camouflage. You know, there's lots of different ways to to uh, creatively hide something. Uh, and I'm not I'm not just talking about camouflage tape or or spray paint. I'm talking about like somebody drilling out a very large pine cone and then putting a uh, an ornament hook on it and hanging it in a pine tree to making it almost invisible. I mean, that's both frustrating <laughs> and so admirable. There are several people around there, Lynn, who create these things called gadget caches, and they learn new skills of woodworking and creating puzzles or even programming these things called Arduino boards. And and cachers, you know, have to figure out how to even open the container. Right. And yeah, like you said, people who hide them start to develop their own flavor, their own style, and, and, uh, and a lot of us out there benefit from it. So you mentioned HQ earlier. I'm wondering sort of how the geocaching universe provides the kind of learning scaffolding that sort of helps turn the confusion, because certainly when you first get started, it's nothing but confusion, kind of into learning. Do you think the rules help? There are hints. What other sorts of things does the game offer that helps people kind of move through the game? Yeah, actually, I've had many conversations with some of the H, uh, geocaching HQ founders about this particular topic itself. And one of the comments you made earlier, you're actually absolutely right. They 
hadn't planned on this uh, developing and growing to the magnitude that it did. But as it did, they realized that they needed to provide some sort of guidance and scaffold, scaffolding, as you say, so that new learners would be able to be brought into the fold and understand what the uh, the community is. And so they've thought about this and have created several videos and several web pages to try to bring people into at least the culture, because there there really is a culture around geocaching. And, you know, some of the things, for instance, like how to deal with fines, um, how to sign log sheets. Um, and, it, and, and let me just touch on that briefly. Hiders really appreciate hearing from finders on their experiences when they, when they find one of the geocaches that they hid. And um, one of the things that finders can do is just write a set of initials, TFTC, meaning thanks for the cache, and move on. And that's not very fulfilling to a hider <laughs> right. who took all the time to you know, make this wonderful experience, right? And so that's a cultural thing. Like you, you want to learn how to be part of the community. Yeah. Another very important uh, way that people are brought into the fold, so to speak, is direct contact with other geocachers. And by that, I mean um, events. And geocachers love, just like anybody who's passionate about their hobby or activity, they love to talk and hear and learn. And events are a very common way to do this. And we're talking about events anywhere from a small gathering of half a dozen people at a pizza uh, parlor just to have you know, a quick dinner and chat all the way to, Lynn, these things called giga events. And that's 5,000, 10,000 geocachers oh getting gosh. together to then have speakers and demonstrations and, and uh, examples of how to build a geocache and find a geocache and games. It is an amazing experience. And that, along with the small pizza parlor, uh, you know, half a dozen people, are great ways to really connect with the community and learn firsthand how to geocache and what the what the culture is. And also, of course, going out with somebody. And it's the weirdest thing. <laughs> you know, you're going out with strangers. You've never met them before. And and sure enough, uh, you're, you're in their car driving to some <laughs> unknown location with this person you've never met before. And yet you have this thing in common which binds you together to say, let's go find that geocache. My family was invited by people we didn't know. They're listeners of our podcast. And, they, and the people in Nor- Norway said, hey, we would like to invite you out to Norway, pay for everything, just come out and geocache with wow. us. And they had a big event and they wanted us to be part of it. And so that's the kind of experiences my family has had is meeting complete, absolute strangers. And we got to experience Norway just because of geocaching. And that's the kind of thing that, uh, that can happen. Wow. That's a great, that's a great story. So I collect what I call curiosity practices, you know, the sort of habits, routines, tricks of the trade that we, that we all use to kind of bring more curiosity into our lives. And I'm wondering, do geocachers have curiosity habits that you think the rest of us could benefit from? Well, yeah, I think it's some of the, some of the things I'd mentioned about hiders, you know, learning from your experiences. I think a lot of geocachers, when a a geocacher is new, they often have more difficulty, I should say, than a veteran geocacher because they don't know what they're looking for. And then what happens is if you use your observational skills, you start to have something that relates to something else that's sort of like this. And, oh, it's kind of like this. So those observational skills, I think, 
are one of those things that um, is, is a habit more or less, and you, you, you develop it without even trying. I think another one is being able to indulge in things that maybe you have not had familiarity with. Puzzles, for instance. Um, puzzles are one of those things that I think geocachers start to learn more about, and, and the more you do them, so exposing yourself to new and different, maybe you know, somewhat challenging things can, can really benefit you. Very cool. Very cool. Well, I'm going to introduce you to something new and maybe challenging. Um, I have my big <laughs> jar of wannabe analogies. Are you game for this? Yeah, absolutely. For sure. Okay. okay. So this is a literal big jar and I, it's filled with slips of paper. I'm going to take one out for you, one for me and one for the audience. And we're going to make an analogy to curiosity with whatever is on these slips. Okay. So um, yours is fire. How is curiosity like fire? And uh, mine is taking a shower. How is curiosity like <laughs> taking a shower? You want to go first or you want me to do this? Uh, why don't you do first so I, I, I kind of get the idea and then I'll, I'll do okay. mine. Okay. Okay. So how is curiosity like taking a shower? Well, uh, let's see. Uh, I think you ought to take a shower every day, and I think you ought to have a little bit of curiosity um, in uh, every day. And I think uh, taking a shower is a way of kind of refreshing and restoring, but also sort of sloughing off stuff that um, you may have accumulated in the day. And I think curiosity is not so much about sloughing off, but but a way of sort of taking the stuff that you've accumulated in the day and, and giving you a kind of a fresh perspective. I like so it. So how is curiosity like fire? <laughs> well, thank you. So I want to know, how is curiosity right. like That's fire? Good. So I think curiosity is like fire because it can start small but grow quickly. I think it's uh, something that um, provides energy. I think it provides uh, its own ability to, to, to grow. And I think it's something that with the right amount of fuel, in other words, providing even more things to be curious about, um, your curiosity can grow. And if you challenge it well, it is a valuable tool for, for many things, for, for light, for heat, for cooking. And uh, I think curiosity is one of those things that has, has many um, opportunities for growth and use. So that's how I think curiosity is like fire. Love it. Love it. Very nice. Before you go, tell us about the Podcaster podcast. Well, our podcast is essentially a variety show, and it's for geocachers of all ages. And by that, I mean not just chronological age, but also newbies, veterans, or muggles who someday want to get into geocaching. And we have news, tips and tricks, tools of the trade, interviews, and caching events from all around the world. You've been listening to Choose to be Curious. You can find this and all my previous episodes on my website at choosetobecurious.com and on social media at Choose to be Curious. And audience, your word is backpack. How is curiosity like a backpack? Let me know. Hashtag analogy. Many thanks to my guest, Sunny Portacio, links to the Podcaster podcast, and more on geocaching on my website. And a shout out to the members of the Northern Virginia Geocaching Organization, who humored me and my questions about both geocaching and curiosity when I first got started. Thanks, too, to Sean Ballack for our theme music. This is Slate Tracker by Glacier Quartet via Blue Dot Sessions. I hope you'll join us again next time. Until then, choose to be curious. Choose to be curious.